Our next speaker is Jack Scanlon. Jack is a Master of Science student at the University of Melbourne, researching insect detoxification genetics, how insects defend themselves against the chemical arsenals of, of the plants they want to eat. He runs the Young Australian Skeptics and its podcast, The Pseudoscientists, which aims to communicate science, scepticism and critical thinking to everyone, regardless of age, level of education or taste in music. Once the gay rights movement succeeds in destroying the sacred institution of, of marriage, he plans on asking science to be his lawfully wedded abstract concept. <laughs> How romantic. <laughs> he sometimes gets emotional thinking about proteins. Can you please welcome Jack to the stage? So I'm going to be talking about... Uh I'm going to be focusing more on a scientist uh, in particular, uh, and his name is Thomas Hunt Morgan. Um, so I'm not quite sure how many of you studied genetics in high school. Um, in the 21st century, it's pretty common to study reasonably high-level genetics uh, at high school, um, which if you were a researcher in at the turn of the 20th century would pretty much blow your mind um, because there is a magic box that pretty much every single person uh, that can read and use a computer um, can use. Uh, well, it's, it, yeah, the internet, it, it uses magic boxes. I think in the IT crowd it was a magic box that was the internet. Um, but yeah, there's, the, there's this thing called the internet and uh, you can basically use it to look up any gene you want in pretty much some organisms, we're getting, we're getting to most organisms eventually, and you can look at what that gene does, where it's expressed, and what maybe what its protein looks like if scientists have looked at that. And geneticists in the early 21st century would probably have a brain aneurysm and die if you told them that, because these guys studied genetics at a time when we didn't know that DNA was the thing that was behind genes. And I'm going to let that sink in because everybody here has probably got it in their minds that DNA is integrally linked to genetics at a fundamental level. And in reality, it is. But in the early 20th century, genetics was this abstract thing of traits being inherited by offspring, uh, being passed down from parents to offspring, and they didn't really know what a gene was, it was just this thing they were using to explain a concept that they saw. And uh, it wasn't until the 50s that people actually said, hey, uh, DNA has this sequence and it's a code and all this interesting stuff happened there. So I'm going to be talking about a guy who basically revolutionised a part of genetics that a lot of people take for granted. And he used it without computers. Uh, he did it without computers, he did it without any of the modern technology that we have today. And uh, that's why he's so inspiring to me. So, Thomas Hunt Morgan was born in Kentucky, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, in 1866, uh, to a rich southern family, which means he basically just missed out on having slaves. Um, and I only mention that because I want everyone to know that I know a little bit about US history. Um, <laughs> even though I'm an Australian high school student, so I probably know more about US history than Australian history. Um, <laughs> Australian history is boring. Uh, so uh, for context, uh, again, I'm going to 
putting this in context, uh, 1866 was 87 years before the discovery of the structure of DNA by Watson, Crick and Franklin in 1953. So that was rounding up to 100 years before we knew this major thing about DNA that everybody takes for granted nowadays. He got his bachelor degree in science at, in 1886, 60, uh, 67 years before the structure of DNA was discovered at what is now the University of Kentucky, and then his PhD was at John Hopkins University uh, in 1890, which is 63 years before the structure of DNA was discovered. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? <laughs> they didn't know the structure of DNA. <laughs> it, that's a big deal. So Morgan's early work was all on embryology uh, and developmental biology and this mystical thing that nobody really understood called regeneration, uh, which isn't related to Doctor Who, though I, I wish it was. Um, it's basically, you've all heard of like salamanders and lizards when you cut off a limb or a tail that grows back magically and people uh, in the, the late 18th century were really mystified by this and you should still be mystified by that today because that's amazing. Um, <laughs> so he, he did all this work on that and uh, he actually got pretty far in the biological community studying that. He basically became a professor um, in the early uh, 20th century uh, based on, on this work. Um, and it's here that sort of Morgan's scientific personality, I want to say, comes through. Um, because he, well, spoiler alert, he, he won a Nobel Prize. Uh, there's been a lot looking uh, at his life. Nobel Prize winners tend to have a lot written about them and their personalities in the lab and their family situations and stuff. And it seemed from all of this writing about Morgan, it seems that he basically didn't like bullshit. Um, he didn't take uh, he, he didn't like speculation that wasn't grounded in, in empirical facts. Um, and uh, apparently he, uh, he, he didn't like what, what he called pseudo-philosophical mumbo-jumbo. Uh, because in the early 20th century you weren't allowed to swear in, uh, in scientific journals. Um, so he was, Morgan was actually really critical of a lot of ideas that were going on around uh, the turn of the 20th century. Um, so the turn of the 20th century, Darwin's stuff had been out there for about 50 years, um, but Gregor Mendel's stuff in genetics had only really been rediscovered. So Gregor Mendel was the, was the monk that did all the pea stuff, and uh, he published it in some scroll, I don't know what monks did, um, and basically he, his stuff got rediscovered uh, at the start of the 20th century, uh, and there was like 50 years where basically Mendel and Darwin were contemporaries, but they never read each other's work. I think Darwin had Mendel's work in a book or a collection of scrolls, um, but he never opened the seal, so he never read it, um, which was disappointing because Darwin struggled with the question of heredity, and it would have helped his theory probably, although Darwin did a lot, and you don't want to put too much pressure on him. I mean, <laughs> he's Darwin. Um, and so, so Morgan had, uh, he was actually critical of a lot of ideas that were going on around the 20th century. So Darwin was, uh, Morgan was actually really critical of speciation by natural selection. So he didn't think there was much evidence for that. Um, he was kind of a bit iffy about Mendelian hereditary. He didn't really know what was going on there. And he also really didn't like something called the chromosome theory. And he really didn't like that. And he said... Um, uh, in 1906, when he was a professor, he noted that uh, he was not in sympathy with all this modern way of referring everything to the chromosomes. And I am continually in hot water, for I live in an atmosphere saturated with chromosomic acid and blue dyes. Uh, he knew how to turn a phrase. Um, and so he, he didn't like this theory. Chromosome theory was basically that 
genes, which were this abstract concept back then, they didn't really know about DNA. Uh, they knew it existed as a chemical thing, but it wasn't really linked to heredity in any way. Basically, chromosome theory was that genes were physically located on chromosomes. I know it's weird. Uh, and chromosomes at the time were basically just proteins and DNA all jumbled together because they didn't have the chemical means to separate them or look at the sequence of DNA. They didn't even think that that was a thing. Um, they didn't have computers back then. They didn't know code. They didn't have an analogy to that. Um, so Morgan didn't see any evidence for this, and he was, he was a bit uh, miffed about that. But um, he actually... Morgan... That, that's one of the things I like about Morgan. He, he didn't like uh, saying that an idea was true without evidence. So uh, he wanted to find evidence to either support or refute these ideas. He didn't, uh, he didn't like the ideas, but he wasn't going to say they're wrong just because he didn't like them. He was going to find evidence for it. So at, uh, in 1909, uh, he was a high-ranking professor at Columbia University. He started up a fly room. Now, uh, it sounds a bit routine these days because fruit flies are used so widely, but uh, Morgan was actually kind of the guy to make fruit flies a thing uh, in genetics, which is why he's so important. Uh, very recently, uh, before uh, 1909, scientists had discovered that flies were actually really easy to breed in their millions, um, and so they could be used to generate lots and lots of flies and, and cross them and do various things and interesting things with their DNA. Oh, with their, not with their DNA, with their genes. Um, and so Morgan had this, uh, this room, and he, he sought about uh, taking his uh, students and using them as slave labor to find... Um, some interesting mutations in, in, uh, in these flies. That was actually the first thing he discovered. Um, Morgan didn't like uh, the speciation by natural selection idea because he really liked this other one, which was called speciation by mutation. And he very quickly realized that mutations didn't actually cause new species to appear by themselves because he kept seeing these weird mutations like freaky wings that wouldn't allow the flies to fly or weird numbers of bristles or weird colors. And they didn't, they could still interbreed, so they weren't new species. So he was disappointed, but he said, I was wrong, and he moved on, which makes him a legend in the scientific community. <laughs> a lot of scientists don't do that. Don't do that. So, but one fateful day, this is his most famous story, um, in 1910, a mutant fly appeared that took his breath away. Um, it took his breath away so much that he actually let the fly escape, and uh, he and his, uh, his students and his wife, who actually worked in the lab with him, um, which is interesting for 1910, um, and I'll talk about her later, uh, they, they spent hours trying to find it, because fruit flies are not like the massive blowflies that attack sheep out in, in the Australian country, or the houseflies that annoy you when you're uh, trying to eat sausages. Um, <laughs> fruit flies are really tiny, really tiny. You basically need a microscope to see them properly. And uh, they spent hours trying to find this one fly that, uh, that was interesting. And why it was interesting was because it had white eyes. Uh, fruit flies normally have red eyes. That's pretty cool. But white eyes, it's like an albino Dan Brown thing. Um, <laughs> So they finally found this fly, and he's like, oh, my God, uh, it's got white eyes. That's amazing. Um, it's like the new iPhone. Uh, <laughs> so what does a genetic do, geneticist do when they find this new mutant? Uh, they basically force it to have sex. That's what geneticists did back then. Genetics was all about crossbreeding. Um, and something happened that Morgan didn't expect. Basically, uh, only the males really had white eyes. Um, up until then, all of the mutations sort of evenly spread out between the males and females, but this was different. Uh, 
Turns out that males really liked having white eyes, but the females, not so much. Basically, what Morgan ended up doing was confirming the chromosome theory because, as everyone knows in humans, uh, females XX and males XY. And in Drosophila, it's a, uh, the fruit fly, it's actually exactly the same, except that the chromosomes are a little different, but XY, XX. Uh, and it turns out the only way that that heredity could be explained is because the white gene that was mutated was on an X chromosome. Uh, and that's why the males were having the white eyes and the females usually weren't because there was only one X on the male. So they only had one gene for that. So Morgan basically, he is, is another example of him not liking an idea but finding the data to support it. And he basically revolutionized genetics with that one experiment. He confirmed this theory that uh, forms the basis of modern genetics today. He won the Nobel Prize in 1933 for his work in that. Um, his entire lab uh, basically went on to become Oh, it, it had, an, I think, an extra two or three Nobel Prizes come out of that lab. Um, he, he did the first stuff with genetic mapping. This is before DNA, by the way. Uh, so they, they were constructing genetic maps of where genes were on the chromosomes, even without knowing where the genes actually, like what they were made of or anything like that. They made maps of the distances. He was actually, he had a, a unit of measurement made, named after him, the Centimorgan. Um, the original unit was called the Morgan, but it was actually too big to be used, so they had to cut it into hundreds. Um, so he's, he's immortalized that way as well. Um, and yeah, I, I was talking about his wife, by the way. His wife worked in his lab. I could, I could talk about his wife for at least the amount of time that I talked about Morgan. Um, his wife was uh, Lillian, uh, Lillian Morgan. Um, she basically did, ex she, because this was an area of genetics that was exploding, she basically discovered as much as he did, but did it while raising four children, managing all of his personal affairs so that he could actually win a Nobel Prize. Um, and she published lots of papers uh, before she got married and had kids, had a 16-year gap in her publication history, then came back and basically made two massive breakthroughs about Drosophila genetics that revolutionized the way that we do genetics. So I want to props to her. And also, um, a daughter of theirs uh, helped make the polio vaccine. So they're pretty much an overachieving family. Um, uh, so in conclusion, um, Thomas, uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan was a scientific hero of mine, basically because, not necessarily because what he discovered, but that was pretty amazing, but because he, he took an idea that he didn't necessarily agree with and wanted to test it anyway and stood by the results when the data proved him wrong. Um, unfortunately, around 1915, he got really into eugenics, so not everyone's perfect. Um, <laughs> Morgan died at the age of uh, 79, in 1945 uh, of a massive heart attack, uh, eight years before the discovery of the structure of DNA. Uh, millions of students every year learn of the centimorgan, uh, play with white-eyed flies in their labs, and uh, never know what legacy he left them. Thanks. <laughs>